And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Let's start in verse 7. Genesis 15, verse 7. And he, the Lord, said to him, Abraham, I am Yahweh, the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all this, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in, the, in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy upon our lives. Thank you for changing our hearts, placing a new song in our mouths, a song of praise to you. We give you all the glory for the marvelous work of salvation. And now we pray that you would continue this work through sanctification. Make us more and more like Christ. Help us to be more and more devoted to you, O Lord. I pray that your holy word would produce holy fruits in our lives. Help me to be faithful and help this wonderful con congregation to be faithful as they listen to the preaching. Lord, we pray for those who are sick, those who are not present here, those who are traveling. Pray for your mercy to be sustaining them. We also pray for faithful pastors, faithful brothers in town who are preaching your word faithfully today. Pray your blessing upon your flock here in Salem. Help us. Help us to stand strong in you, Lord. We need your grace. We need your mercy. 
So be kind towards us, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have been walking through this journey, trying to get an overview of the Bible, how the Bible is put together. And we saw the the glorious and majestic drama of God redeeming a people to dwell in His presence is structured around six major covenants, if you remember. And as we picture the drama of redemption in the shape of a comedy, it starts well, goes down, and then becomes even better than it was before. As you think about the drama of redemption, we got to see the covenants as the backbone, as what's holding the story together. Somebody asked me, one of the members asked me to give a definition of covenant once again. I have done that before, so I will give you once again a definition of covenant. I like what Thomas Reiner writes. I think it's concise and precise. He says that a biblical, biblical covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make, make binding promises to each other. I think it's very simple and very precise. A chosen relationship. And remember, God's covenant always begins with whom? God choosing to make a covenant. Amen? So, He comes, He chooses to make a covenant. And because He loved us first, we now love Him back. We could also see, and I think it's very appropriate to see marriage, the covenant of marriage as a powerful illustration of the nature of a covenant. Where we have a solemn commitment of oneself to undertaking to undertake an obligation. So two parties are brought into a special relationship. There are promises and obligations. That's the nature of covenant. As Gentry and Wellam, they say, at, at the heart of the covenant, then, is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness and loyalty in love. The two Hebrew words... Has said in a mat. And you think about that. Why, why two people get married? Why do they make a covenant of marriage? But to live together. To enjoy each other's presence. And that's the heart of the biblical covenant. God making a covenant to bring a people to dwell in His presence. And enjoy His presence forever. The six major covenants that we have holding the Bible, the story of the Bible together, I believe are the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant with Christ. So last time we were together through this series, we saw the Adamic and Noahic covenants. We saw the covenants with Adam and Noah, and now today you're going to start moving to the Abrahamic covenant. But before going there, it's important here. We saw how the Adamic and Noahic covenants, these two covenants, they bring, they inaugurate a lot of the themes that will be explored throughout the scriptures. So that's why 
it's so vital to, to have a good grasp of the beginning of Genesis because all those major themes will be developed throughout the scriptures. The Adamic covenant shows God's purpose for his people. He wants his people to be his priests, worshiping him in his sanctuary. That's why he makes Adam and then he places Adam in his garden, in his temple. He moves Adam and places him in his temple to be as if he was a priest. Not only that, we saw that God also wants his people to be his vice regents, kings, reflecting God's image, expanding his kingdom throughout the earth. So that's very important as you're thinking about the Adamic covenant, how these themes will be developed later in the scriptures. So, Genesis and Revelation. I believe that the beginning and the end of the Bible, they're very revealing as to what God's purpose is for his people. And in Genesis, we see God making man to serve him as his king and priest, as a royal priesthood. That's very important to keep this in mind. What is the purpose of making Adam and Eve and placing them in Eden and then asking them to multiply and fill the earth? Royal priesthood. And that will be developed throughout the scriptures. Adam was made in the image of God, and we saw that the image of God in ancient Near East was a language of kings. And here is one very clear example in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he makes what? An image of himself. And that's what kings would do in ancient Near East. They would make images of themselves and place in different territories showing that they are there. And the more images that they had throughout the territory, more glory they got because it's reflecting the king's power and authority. So God makes Adam in his image. Place him there. God commands him to be fruitful and multiply, implying the spread of God's royal image, his kingdom throughout the world. Adam and Eve were also created to be priests in the garden. They were to dwell in God's presence, enjoy his presence, keep the sanctuary clean. Thus, God's people were made to be a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. Desmond Alexander, he writes, In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are endowed with a holy or priestly status that enables them to serve in the temple garden and have direct access to God. In addition, the human couple are appointed as God's viceroys to govern the earth on his behalf. In the ancient Near East, in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, the phrase image of God was commonly linked to kings. The king was the living image of a god. To be made in the image of God is to be given regal, royal status. And then he goes on, he says, In the ancient Near East, a ruler's image was set up in distant parts of his kingdom in order to indicate that his authority reached there. Taken in conjunction with their holy status, Adam and Eve are to be fruitful so that their descendants may, as priest kings, extend God's temple and kingdom throughout the earth. This was God's blueprint for the created world. 
So, but that's Genesis. How about the rest of the Bible? Remember what I said? You get the beginning and the end. And it's very revealing. The bookends of the Bible. And you come to Revelation. And here there's so many more examples from the book of Re- Revelation. But just here you can see how the last book of, Re- of the Bible shows that the last Adam, Jesus, the perfect king, the perfect priest, came to restore God's people to this glorious identity and function of royal priesthood. So in Revelation we see, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, To Jesus Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us what? Made us what? Kingdom and priests, just like back in, the, in Eden. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, For you, the Lamb, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first res- resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be what? Priests of God and of Christ. And they will what? Reign. That's the same Greek word for king. Reigning. A royal priesthood. Revelation 21 and 22 shows God's people dwelling in the new tabernacle, the new Jerusalem as kings and priests. Thus the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is how God, through His covenant, make a people to be His royal priesthood. Men and women who reflect His royal image and dwell in His presence, worship Him, enjoy His presence, and delighting in His smiling face. That's what we see. And the covenants hold this drama, this story together. And you think about all the covenant mediators, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, they all act as priests and kings. All of them. They have some aspect of royal priesthood. And we are going to see when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant that God calls Israel to be what? A kingdom of priests. So it's following from there and then moving forward. So the covenants show how God has a plan to have a people who will be His royal priesthood. Royal in the sense that they are to be God's image, expanding His kingdom, and priests because they are dwelling in His presence. And that goes back to Genesis 3.15, when you have the promise of the seed. And the seed would come to undo the curse of the fall. And the seed will fulfill God's plan of restoring God's people into a royal priesthood. Because the seed himself is painted as a king and priest. How? The seed is pictured as a king by destroying the enemy. Smashing the skull of the serpent. And as a priest, because by doing that, he's keeping clean the sanctuary of God. Something that Adam was supposed to have done and he did not do it. We saw in our last sermon in this series how Adam and Noah, they functioned as royal priests. They had the duty of expanding God's kingdom, serving as priests in God's temple. Noah, like Adam, becomes the father of the nations. He has a royal representative office. He's to rule over the new creation after the flood. 
as a priest, and just like Adam, Noah is called to the mountain of the Lord where he offers a pleasing sacrifice. So can you see the aspect of royal priesthood here flowing from Adam to Noah, and then we will now flow to Abraham. So God's plan of having a people who will be his royal priesthood continues now to be developed with the Abrahamic covenant. Important. As we come to the Abrahamic covenant, the story of Abraham starts where? And I'm not being tricky. Where, where in your Bible, the story of Abraham? What chapter of the Bible, the narrative of Abraham starts? Yeah, primarily chapter 12, right? If you're looking at your Bibles, that's where the narrative starts. Actually, if you go to chapter 11 and you have the genealogy of Abraham, so we, we would say that the story of Abraham starts with the genealogy there in chapter 11. And that's very important. So we cannot divorce. And that's what some people do. They come to Abraham and it's as if they can just erase chapters 1 through 11 and just come up with Abraham. You cannot do that. Abraham is flowing from the story of Genesis 1. Amen? We have a serious problem if we just erase Genesis 1 through 11 and just come to Abraham. No. There's a narrative. There's a story. There's a drama of redemption taking place. And as we come to the story of Abraham, I think we can summarize, as we think about the context, we can summarize Genesis 3 through 11 as the exile of the nations. After the fall of Adam, man starts a journey of moving farther and farther away from the presence of God. That's the book of Genesis. Man moving farther and farther away from God's presence. Starting with Adam and Eve, and then his descendants. Noah, we, as you're reading this story, you think that, yes, Noah now, he's blameless, he's righteous, he will ascend the mountain of the Lord. And how does the story of Noah end? He's following the steps of his father Adam. Takes too much of the fruit of the wine. Gets drunk, naked, in shame, just like Adam in the fall. And then, the story doesn't end there. Ends with Noah actually speaking curses and blessing upon his sons. And he, profess, he, he proclaims a blessing upon Shem. And he says, it's very interesting, he says that the tents of Japheth will come under Shem. Meaning that the nations will be blessed by the seed that will come through Shem. And that's the story of Noah. And we are just kind of, whoa, what's going on here? And then the next story, as we finish the story of Noah, we come to the Tower of Babel. Babel. That's Genesis chapter 11. And what we have there, the next story after the account of Noah, is about the exile of humanity in light of man's attempt to build a name and a temple into the heavens. It's humanity trying to gain the presence of God through man's own efforts. The massive, we, we think about a tower, we call the Tower of Babel, 
but it was actually a massive temple that they were building. It was a, the ancient ziggurat, and it was an attempt of humanity to gain eternality, gain a name, gain the presence, heavens, by their own effort. Stephen Dempster, he writes, and I think it's very good what he says. He says, the building of the tower by the human community in the post-flood world is an attempt to reproduce a cosmic mountain and so to get back to the garden. But it results in humanity being uprooted again and being scattered over the land. It is clear that the last member of this genealogy, the tenth from Noah, Abram, is another deliverer who holds hope for the world. So instead of killing humanity like he did with the flood, now the Lord God sends all humanity into exile. All humanity is in all the parts of the world. Their confusion of language. The nations are in exile from God's presence under his curse. So you think about Adam and Eve sinning and being in exile. The Genesis 11 is... It's just a much greater, it's Adam and Eve on a greater scale. It's, it's all humanity disobeying God and being in exile from His presence. So we, we see the, the Bible does not start with the nation of Israel. Sometimes we think that it's all about Israel. And we start seeing that actually the call of Israel that's connected to the call of Abraham is connected to God's care for humanity in general, His people all over the world. It's interesting that the life of Abraham is traced in Genesis 11 all the way back to Shem, Noah's son. And Noah, of course, is traced all the way back to Adam Therefore, the covenant with Abraham is a continuation of God's initial plan. You cannot divorce God's covenant with Abraham from Genesis 1 through 11. Out of the nations in exile, God calls one man to be the instrument of blessing to the nations. So Abraham will be God's instrument to reverse the curse and bring the seed. One scholar says, Abraham was called, out, was called out of Ur for the sake of the nations who had been scattered from the presence of God. It's the return from this exile itself, a reflex of humanity's expulsion from Eden, for which God covenants with Abraham. Abraham himself was called out of exile in Ur as part of God's plan to reverse the exile of the nations. So what he's saying is that Abraham is a microscope of the whole nation. God is calling this man out of the nations so he will be a blessing to the nations to bring people from all the nations to God's presence. So that's Genesis 11. So here, that was just the introduction. And we need that. Here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to see... We're just going to look at the first two parts. We're going to look at the engagement... The Lord calls Abram, Genesis 12, and then the covenant ceremony, Genesis 15. And then next Lord's Day, we're going to be looking at the covenant confirm and, and signalize. 
We have the, the sign of the covenant. Then we have the covenant test, reaffirmed by oath, Genesis 22. And then we bring some connections of the Abraham co Abrahamic covenant with all the other covenants. Okay, so that's the plan for this Sunday and next Lord's Day, if he wills. So this is already covered Genesis 11. You're going to be amazed. You're going to find out that I have a gift of covering big chunks of the Bible. <laughs> you didn't know that, right? Just don't know what time you're going to be out of here. Here's the story of Abraham. That's very important as, you, as we're thinking about Abraham. And remember that we're going to cover this when you go through the book of Genesis. So right now I, I need to move fast. I'm not taking, spending too much time in details. We're going to cover that in Genesis. I'm trying to help you seeing how this covenant brings an overview of the Bible and how this covenant with Abraham holds some of the major themes together. So the story of Abraham is divided in four major scenes or four major parts. You have Genesis 12, that's the giving of the promise. Then you have Genesis 15, that's the making of the covenant. Then Genesis 17, you have affirming the covenant and the sign of the covenant. And then Genesis 22, Abraham's obedience and confirmation of the covenant and the promise by oath. So it's very similar to a marriage where you have a man coming And making promises. And then those promises are later officialized in a marriage ceremony. And that's basically what we have here. Uh, like what Wellam and Gentry write, they say, We might compare the relationship between God and Abraham to a marriage. The giving of the promises in chapter 12 would then represent the betrothal or engagement. The covenant making chapter 15. And the affirmation in chapter 17 would correspond to the wedding vows of the marriage covenant. After testing Abraham, God re reiterates his promise by a mighty oath. So, let's go to Genesis 12. I hope you have our Bibles open there. Genesis chapter 12. And these first three verses are vital. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and, for, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing or better and be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so we have here it's the major turning point in the book of Genesis it's Genesis chapter 12 that's the major turning point. With these few words, the Lord puts creation back on the path of blessing and renewal. Count how many times the word blessing is there. How many times is the word blessing in Genesis 12? Five, yes, five times. That's very important. Because from Genesis 3 through 11, five times Moses used the word curse. And now five times used the word blessing. Meaning that through Abraham, the curses from the fall will be undone. Royce Yampa, he says, 
The fivefold repetition of the language of blessing in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, suggests the, suggests the response to the five occurrences of the word curse in Genesis 1 through 11. Thus, the promise of blessing, Abraham's seed, suggests that through him the curse of Genesis 1 through 11 will be undone. Then he quotes another scholar here the three blessings of gifts of land and seed and earthly blessing are in fact a typological reversal of the primordial curse curses in eden and it's fascinating because if you as we continue we know that the lord is calling abraham to go where what is the name of the land where he's going canaan he's coming to canaan and he's moving abraham from the region, and I have here, so Ur, there are two possibilities of the location of Ur, but both are in the east in Babylon, in the area of Babylon, but most scholars believe that's the southern one. So that's where Abraham is, and you remember that after the fall, humanity is moving eastward. They're moving farther and farther from God's presence, and the book of Genesis is very clear, they're moving east east of Edom, and they move east, east, meaning that coming back to God's presence, you've got to move what? West. So by calling Abraham to leave east and come to west, it's a return to Eden. It's him bringing Abraham back as if it was to Eden. After the fall, they move east. Now moving west means coming back to the place where God first dwelt with men. So, Morales, he says, the progress toward inheriting Canaan is nothing less than a groping towards the Edenic presence of God. Abram's initial movement towards the promised land westward from Ur is characterized as an incipient return to Eden. Indeed, the road from, from Haran to the land of Canaan symbolized the return of humanity to Eden and God. Abraham and the promised land provide a counterpoint and answer to Adam and the Garden of Eden. That's fascinating. That's, we, we have so little knowledge of Abraham. Sometimes the only thing we know about Abraham is, hey, Father Abraham has many sons. And it's so profound, the story of Abraham. Genesis 12 is basically divided. This first call is divided in two parts. You have two imperatives. You have the first one is go. That's the first command, go. And then the second command is be a blessing. And most translations miss that. I don't know why. That's basic Hebrew. It's an imperative. Be a blessing. And there is... It's beautiful how Moses writes. So you have an imperative... And then three consequences of the obeying the imperative. So go, and then the Lord says, and I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great. Be a blessing. So as he's going, the Lord is making him into a great nation, he's blessing him, he's making his name great. Therefore now, because he's being blessed, now Abraham has the duty to bless and bless, be a blessing. And as he's being a blessing, the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in all nations, we will be blessed through you. 
Well, that's how we see here. And Abraham is obedient. He goes. And then in verses 4 through 9, you can see in our Bibles, look at chapter 12, verse 4 through 9. Abraham, Abraham obeys the word of the Lord. He departs from the region of Babylon and he starts his exodus. It's an exodus journey like into Canaan. And think about Abraham having to leave Ur. He has to leave his land. And we, 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 we live in a time that's so easy for us to move. So, so many people move and it's so easy to move. Just get a U-Haul truck, get a different job. That was not how things were in ancient times. You didn't move. There was a deep and profound covenant with your family, with that piece of property. People did not leave. So when God calls him and he obeys, that's the gospel call. You've got to put to death your past. Your past is dead. You're going to trust me. And we are going to see in chapter 22 that the Lord then asked him to sacrifice his future. And that's the gospel. Day by day trusting the Lord Jesus. And then in verses 10 through 20, start seeing how Abraham, he also needs a Savior. He's sinful. He sins. And... What happens is starting verse 10. Look in your Bibles. What is the heading there? Abraham goes where? To Egypt. Who went to Egypt? Who was in Egypt? Israel. So you see, he's embodying also. He has the embodiment of the nation of Israel. It's very important to see these things here. And then in chapter 13, he leaves Egypt. He has an exodus just like Israel. But what is important in chapter 12, go back to chapter 12, we see, it says, And Abraham, starting verse 5, And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people what, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land, passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And then you see that he builds an altar to the Lord. He's acting just like a priest now. He builds, he builds an altar. And back there, you still don't have the tabernacle, so it's a, it's a type. It's a, something similar to what tabernacle would be. And that's the land of Canaan, where Israel will be and will have the temple there. So he's acting just like a priest. The same word there for altar is, using, is used for Noah in Genesis 8.20. So Abraham, similar to Adam and Noah, acts as a king and priest. We know that Abraham is called to a royal calling because the promise of a name. The promise of a name. I'll make your name great. This, this was what kings had. Kings had names great. That's why in the Davidic covenant, God promises David that he will make his name great. It's the promise of a king. So he starts seeing Abraham putting together the royal and the priestly offices in his own life. So if Genesis 12 is similar to the engagement, Genesis 15 is the wedding ceremony. But before we get to the wedding ceremony, you go through Genesis 14, and it's a very interesting account in Genesis 14, because 
right there, Abraham behaves just like a king, and he goes into war against four kings of the east. Do you remember that story? Abraham against the four kings of the east, and he defeats them. And after he defeats them, what, what happens? Who comes to meet with Abraham? Melchizedek. Beautiful character. Melchizedek comes. And, and who is Melchizedek? How is he described? He's a priest of the God Most High. And he's the king of where? Salem. Peace. He's the king of peace. Salem, Shalem, Shalom. That's related to the area. And he's a king and priest. Huh. Royal priesthood. I don't think he's Jesus. Some people say that he was Jesus. I disagree with that. I don't think Jesus ever became incarnate. was in the fullness of time when he came. That's what Paul tells us. In the fullness of time, he took on flesh. So we, when, he talks, we, when he walks through Genesis, I'll go through this, but I don't think that's Jesus. I think it's a real, real person there, a real king and priest who was also a priest of the God Most High. And his name, Melchizedek. Melak, that's the Hebrew for king. Tzedek, righteous. So it could be, uh, my God is the king of righteousness, or his name could be king of righteousness. So those things are very important because we'll get back here in this story. And we know that Abraham refuses allegiance with the king of Sodom. Do you remember the king of Sodom comes to him, offering him goods, and he says no. And instead, what he does is he enters into a covenant at least it seems like, with Melchizedek, because Melchizedek comes bringing what? Bread and wine. And they have a meal together. That was part of covenant ceremony, to share a meal together. And that's what takes place here. One scholar says, By affirming the truthfulness of what Melchizedek has to say in rejecting the offer of the king of Sodom, Abraham indicates his own commitment to be a righteous king-priest. And then that leads us to chapter 15. So after being met by Melchizedek, the righteous king, now he's met by the true king of righteousness, Yahweh. So that's chapter 15. You see, we already covered Genesis 11, 12, 13, 14, and now in Genesis 15. <laughs> I told you that your jaws would drop. <laughs> and Genesis 15 is structured in two parts. Dealing with the promise of the seed, verses 1 through 6, and then dealing with the promise of land, verses 7 through 21. Those two promises that God had made to Abraham. And remember that Abraham refused the, the, the reward, the spoils of war from the king of Sodom. And the Lord comes to him in Genesis 15, and he promised that his reward will be great. And you can, you can just picture the frustration of Abraham. He has not had his son that he's longing for. So he's basically saying, right, you're promising that my reward will be great, but where is my son? Where is the seed that you promised? That's the reward that I want. And then what does the Lord do to him? Abraham, come here. It's night time. Come outside. Look to the skies. Try to count these stars. That's how numerous your seed will be. That's what God does to him. 
God thus answered Abraham's complaint, not with arguments backed up by irrefutable logic, but by reaffirming his promise and adding a powerful visual sign. And what does Abraham do? Look at verse 6. That's one of the most important verses here. What does it say? Verse 6. He believed. And then what? Yes. Do you see all that massive doctrine of justification by faith that Paul develops in the New Testament is coming from where? Right here. Right here. What is to believe? The Hebrew word for believing is from where we get amen, aman. It's to embrace, it's to say yes. And here is God. And what does he believe? What does Abraham believe? Yes, the promise of what? A seed. This promise of seed comes where? Where is the first time that's mentioned? Genesis 3.15. So they see Abraham is believing in the promise of the seed that goes all the way back. He's believing in the promise of a Messiah, a seed who will come and undo the curse of the fall. That's why he's counted as righteous. He believes, he embraces that, he knows that he's, that's what Paul says, he's as good as a dead man. That's how Abraham is. Him and Sarah together, her womb is dead. He is dead to have a son. And the Lord says, I will give you. And he embraces that, he says, Amen. I believe you, Lord. I believe you. You are the God of creation. You will bring life out of this dead situation. And the Lord counts as righteousness. That's all we have here. So it's a massive doctrine that's developed throughout the New Testament. And a lot of times we think that the first five books of the Bible is all about what we understand by laws and regulations. right? That's how we think about the first five books of the Bible. Oh, a lot of laws. It's all about laws and regulations and the, one of the major themes is faith, believing God. It's amazing how Moses places this, this, this verb of believing God or not believing God in very crucial po- points in the Pentateuch, in the Torah. And then we know that a whole generation does not inherit this land. Why? Because they did not believe God. And then we move to the cutting of the covenant and that's in chapter 15 and look at verse 7 verse 7 and the Lord said to Abraham I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess and if you know your Bibles this sentence will take you back or forward to Exodus 19 Exodus chapter 20, when God is entering into a covenant with Israel. And that's exactly what the Lord says to the nation of Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you, not out of Ur of the Chaldeans, but of the land of Egypt. The same language. Why? As I told you, Abraham is embodying 
the history of Israel. That's how God works. Then Jesus will come and embody the story or the history of Adam, Abraham, Israel. And we see the, the God of Abraham is the God of Exodus. Is a God who loves to bring people out of captivity, out of exile, into His presence. That's who the God of Abraham is. So both Abraham and Israel were called out of exile to be God's royal priesthood and bless the nations. And then imagine now, later on, when Israel is in, in captivity in Babylon, just where Abraham was before. And these words would encourage them that one day the Lord would also call them out of the exile back to the land. And then verses 7 through 8 says, you can see in your Bibles, and he said, let me see if I have here. No. He says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, they see once again, just like with the, the, the first promise of the seed, he questions God. Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? And then the Lord answers his question with a covenant ceremony. And then we read in verse 18, On that day the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abraham. And there is this strange ritual. Right? It's strange for us. Look at verses 7 through 11. The Lord tells Abraham to bring a heifer. What is a heifer? Yes, a, a, a young cow that has not have any babies yet. So he tells... and. Think about how much a heifer would cost today. It's not cheap. Now imagine those days how much a heifer would cost. It's pretty expensive, this, these animals here. And he needs to bring a ram, a goat. And of course he can't cut the, the little birds in half. They're too small. But he cuts these big animals in half. And he makes as if it was a pathway. He puts, think about cutting the heifer in half, the ram, have the goat, and it, as if it was a pathway with the dead bodies. And then we are told that Abraham, he keeps what from attacking the animals? The birds of prey. Those unclean birds of coming. And here, Abraham is acting just like a priest, keeping the sacrifice devoted to God. And then we are told that great darkness comes and the Lord brings a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. Do you remember who had a deep sleep before finding his covenant partner? Adam. Yes. Like with Adam, the Lord brings a deep sleep upon this new Adamic figure. And then as the, no the night approaches, we hear, and when the sun, look at verse 17 and 18, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And the question is, what's going on here? What's taking place? Most, many, I would say many scholars believe that there was an ancient ritual that you'd cut the animals in half. So you, you, you cut the animals in half, and both parties that were making the covenant, they would walk through the, par the parts of the animals saying, if I break this covenant, let me be just like these dead animals. So that's how a lot of scholars 
see that as the passing through the parts implying if I break the covenant I'll be just like these dead animals that's one way we know that in Jeremiah 34 we have the same type of covenantal ceremony Jeremiah chapter 34 if you're taking notes verses 18 through 19 but I have a different interpretation here it, it could be that that's great and fine but just because what the Lord tells Abraham he explains what's going on by telling us that his descendants will be in a foreign land will be under slavery and the Lord will come to rescue them so I believe that whatever is taking place here is pointing us to what? to the exodus to the exodus so many scholars see the smoking fire pot representing the Lord. The animals symbolize Israel and the birds of prey, the enemies. And of course, the, the enemies cannot come because Abraham is what? And that pictures that God will not the enemies of Israel destroy them because of his covenant with Abraham. So Gordon Wenon in his commentary, he says... If the pieces represent Israel, because all those animals later are used for the offerings of Israel. He says, if the pieces represent Israel, this action would appear to portray God as walking with his people. Whether the, the reference is to the pillar of fire accompanying them through the wilderness, or the theophany of Sinai, or whether it portrays the fulfillment of the covenant promise, I will walk among among you and be your God, Leviticus 26.12, it's difficult to decide. Indeed, the possibilities are not mutually ex exclusive. Every type of sacrificial animal is represented to underline the significance of the scene. All Israel is involved. But that's not it. There's more. Morales, he says, what is more certain, by comparing God's words, Genesis 15 13 through 16, with the vision, the scene that unfolds before Abram forms a symbolic enactment of the exodus of Israel, led by Yahweh's pillar of cloud and fire. As retold in, in the song afterwards, Israel's path through the sea is described as a journey between the walls of death. And now we will develop that when we come through Genesis 15 and show you how the vocabulary that Moses is using match the Exodus. And then in Psalm 136, 13, the between the parts, how God brought Israel in between the parts, the same expression for the Exodus. So Abraham experienced an Exodus-like vision at night. That's when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt at night. And the Lord showed him how that deliverance would be accomplished through the blood of sacrifice. The seed of Abraham would pass through the walls of death to enter the promised land. But do you see? Abraham himself could never bring the people out of exile. He needs his seed. He needs the Lord himself. As we will find out, as the revelation continues, that exodus, the first exodus, was just 
a type of the greater exodus that would come through the seed of Abraham. So, the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would also go through a greater deep sleep but upon a cross. A literal, physical death on a cross. In order to inaugurate the new covenant that brings the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, the walls of death that Jesus went through to bring his people out of exile were not dead animals. It was the death of his own body. He had to die in order to bring his people out of the exile to a much better exodus. In Genesis 15, 17, we saw... <coughs> I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur. And then in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then we come to the New Testament. Peter applies the same language when he calls the church the royal priesthood. That he called us not of Ur, not of Egypt, but of darkness. The seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord, provides the greatest blessing of all. The blessing of bringing us back to God's presence. That's what blessing is. Blessing is to go back to Eden. That's the root of all blessing, to enjoy God's smiling face upon us. And that's what Jesus provides, the seed of Abraham. He blesses the nations. And look at us here. Look at us. That's the proof. People from different parts, different parts of the world. Look at the church of Christ being blessed, being brought back into God's presence to worship Him as a royal priesthood. Amen? And today His arms are wide open. His arms are wide open. And if you only believe in Him, just like Abraham, just trust Him, believe Him, say, Amen! Amen! You are. You are the one who can rescue me from the exile from God's presence, from this miserable life outside God's smiling face. If you're just like Abraham, say, Amen. He will count you as righteous. Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord but the righteous one? And you'll be able to dwell in His presence. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for this wonderful, beautiful story that we have just started journeying through. I pray that you would increase our affections towards you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love your people more. Thank you that we have a God who is faithful to his promises. And we can trust and we must trust your promises. Those who have not believed you, Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be drawing them to you, that they would, just like Abraham, say amen and embrace the seed who brings blessing to the nations. And the greatest blessing is to be in God's presence and enjoy His favor and His love and His covenantal faithfulness. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.